You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And we heard a lot about tertiary-level education in the federal election campaign, but we're still none the wiser about how universities and vocational education and training are going to be funded over the long term. Many TAFE institutions are struggling. Uh, There's been scandals in the vocational training sector and the government's legislation to deregulate higher education uh, uh, fees has been knocked back twice in the Senate. So where where now? What are we going to do? Peter Noonan's with the Mitchell Institute of Victoria University and a professor of tertiary education and he's proposing a new system for financing tertiary education and uh, has a new paper out looking at the challenges that universal participation in post-secondary education would pose for Australia and uh, it's really great to have you on Triple R, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Yeah, good. And um, before we talk about, I suppose, the proposal that you've you've put out there, what are the problems uh, that we need to address in this area, do you think? Uh, well, I should probably uh, clarify, first of all, when I talk about tertiary education, I'm talking about the higher education sector, principally universities, and vocational education and training, at least from certificate level three, which includes apprenticeships and above. People often think tertiary education is just about higher education, but in fact, it's um, essentially it's, it's post-school um, education for young people and for um, and for older learners. The problem we've got in Australia at the moment is that um, vocational education and training is funded by the states with some Commonwealth money um, and vet fee help and higher education is fully funded by the Commonwealth and there's a really big growing imbalance between the two sectors vet funding and participation and enrolments are falling and it's had the scandals you referred to in terms of vet fee help and problems with the uh, system in Victoria um, at least um, whereas in higher education, enrolments have really boomed in the last uh, five or six years. So there's basically a growing gap in participation levels between the sectors and um, um, investment and, and also, I think, quality perception. And my proposal is to basically take a total look at tertiary education rather than taking decisions about VET or higher education um, uh, individually. Uh, to try and better, get a better balance and better opportunities for, um, particularly for all young people. So, what's the right balance? I mean, is there a, is there a sort of an optimal number of students that we should have in one part of the the tertiary sector versus the other, Peter? Look, I don't think there's an optimal number, and I'm hesitant to see governments artificially setting targets and numbers to try and achieve that optimal balance. The key thing is that financial decisions, be they subsidies from government or payments to students or the availability of income contingent loans shouldn't sway decisions of education and training institutions and providers or of students about what sector they enrol in. Uh, I think it's always going to be the fact that higher education has more prestige. That's uh, uh, an international phenomenon. Um, But what's important, therefore, is to ensure that the quality and outcomes from vocational education and training are improved and better understood by the community but supported by proper funding because if there's a problem of quality and confidence and funding levels are falling that's going to just um, affect not only quality but enrolment levels uh, enrolment levels as well what it means is that the only source of growth at the moment for all of tertiary education in australia is through degree level higher education and that's not suitable or appropriate for uh, for lots and lots of learners. 
Yeah, we've heard a lot also about skill shortages and brain drains and this kind of thing over the years and concern about the, I suppose, the brightest students um, not you know, not being catered for. But what about the jobs of the future, uh, Peter? Uh, they're not all going to be the same, obviously, but, what, you know, well, where do you see this going? In the paper I put out, Kelly, I reference the Department of Employment's job growth forecasts and the headline take-out from that is that of the almost a million jobs to be created in Australia in the next five years are expected to be created, only about 20,000 will be available for people with only a high school qualification. That in, and if you've got a teacher qualification of some kind, you're not even in the game in terms of um, getting and retaining a job. It's also true that there are a lot of jobs being created at lower skill levels that will require a teacher qualification in some form nonetheless, as well as a lot of jobs that will require a degree or a high-level VET qualification. I think the key thing is that we know that people change jobs frequently and um, it's therefore important that people don't just necessarily train for one job but build the broad skills and capabilities for the future workforce and that's a separate focus of some major work at the Minister Institute as well. And I, I think, I mean, that, that poses the question. A lot of people who do a degree qualification might also do a certificate qualification in another area. Do we have a, a good understanding of the needs of students? Not particularly, no. I don't, I don't think so. And one of the problems is that data and analysis and research and, and planning is done separately um, for, both, uh, for both sectors. Um, and I don't think there is nearly enough research done into the actual needs, particularly of young people, but also older learners. And we don't understand enough about the pathways that people will take through, uh, through tertiary education in and out of different qualifications and particularly between vet and higher education. And one thing that we need more research into is, um, is better longitudinal data into student pathways um, and, and outcomes. And I suppose one thing we do know uh, when uh, you're sort of, well, many people are calling for a universal tertiary education, making it uh, accessible to all students post-secondary, but we're not even getting all students through secondary education, are we? No, there's, um, there's a, a, a separate but significant problem of the numbers of young people who aren't completing secondary education or are completing secondary education with really poor results. Um, and they're not even really in a position to successfully enter tertiary education except possibly for some lower level vet qualifications. What we do know is that young people who don't have um, year 12 or the equivalent of year 12 or who only have a lower level vet qualification such as a certificate two or a certificate one um, are going to fare much worse in the labour market but also in terms of health outcomes uh, in terms of um, social inclusion, um, in terms of um, uh, longevity in the labour market, in terms of access to rewarding jobs, even propensity to partner um, and to establish successful families are all affected by um, poor initial levels of, uh, of, of education. And it's really a critical issue facing the country, I think. Uh, the other point that we do know is, as well is that some young people who do complete Year 12 and transition into tertiary education don't complete or don't get a good outcome. 
and they're significantly disadvantaged as well. So it's not just about participation, it, it, is, it is also about outcomes as well. So what about the higher education and, um, uh, and TAFE and, and vocational education and training um, institutions? Is there an appetite at the moment to change the way that the financing actually happens? Well, we'll wait to see what the um, federal government comes up with um, in, in the next um, phase of uh, the decisions it's going to make. Um, but separately, uh, the Council of Australian Governments, the, the State Premiers and the Education and Training Ministers really need to get their heads together to sort out the future of the VET sector. It's a long time since COAG did that um, and uh, there's been various proposals uh, to fix up the funding system and to address quality and so on. But it's been done in a reasonably um, fragmented way to date. Um, the Commonwealth again proposed that perhaps it should take over all of tertiary education, at least in terms of funding. Uh, but that proposal was rejected by at least uh, most states. Um, but the states, except for Victoria, have been cutting funding for VET uh, at the same time. And um, that's led, as I've said, to this imbalance between, between the two sectors in funding. Yes, yeah, so they've got hold of it, but they're actually not funding it properly. And I, I think one thing I, I noticed in the, the federal election campaign, Peter, was that uh, that $100,000 degree um, campaign of Labor's was very prominent and there was concern around loading students up with debt as a way of funding um, the higher education sector in particular. Where are we at with that? Are, are, has the government um, walked away from the policies that uh, I suppose might not have led to a $100,000 degree but certainly um, high fees for some courses? The government has indicated that it won't pursue um, universal or complete deregulation of university fees but it's raised as a prospect the potential for some fee flexibility for what's called flagship courses for, if you like, the most prestigious or the most innovative or outstanding courses in particular institutions. But there haven't been any decisions, final decisions taken on that. Um, my position on that is probably somewhat controversial within universities. I do support some level of fee flexibility. I don't think that universities as modern uh, 21st century um, organisations shouldn't be precluded, should be precluded from um, charging different fee levels for um, uh, courses often in different ways. Um, I think the key thing is that the fees have got to be properly priced and the revenue from fees have got to be directly related to student benefits and student outcomes. You shouldn't be allowed to just simply put fees up um, for institutional prestige or to subsidise research or for other purposes. If students are being asked to pay extra fees, it should be directly related to um, um, a benefit to the student in terms of significant enhancements to courses. Um, and if that happened, I would also hope that any fee increases would be uh, would be relatively uh, would be relatively modest. And I imagine that kind of approach would require some sort of oversight. Maybe tell us um, ab about how you see the way forward this kind of an independent body overseeing some of these uh, fees is, is part of your proposal it is and the most important thing is that the policy framework adopted by the government is a comprehensive one so that it um, looks at vet and higher education together that doesn't mean that the funding decisions and the funding mechanisms are the same but we have to recognize the relationships between the two sectors and the as i said the need for for, for better balance 
my own view is that that would best be done by um, an independent um, body that particularly in relation to funding and fee levels could um, uh, do that on, a, um, on, a, on evidence basis and, and oversee the establishment of proper pricing for courses both in terms of subsidies and student fees but also undertake some long-term planning and analysis about the country's future needs. In the Mitchell Institute paper what we do is look at the effect of population growth on participation rates in tertiary education and because the population is growing and particularly the population of young people is growing if we simply stand where we are in terms of enrolment participation rates in tertiary education will fall and we believe um, a long-term view about that needs to be undertaken in the same way as we treat long-term investment in infrastructure through Infrastructure Australia. And I imagine um, the current federal government's looking at savings and cost savings in the budget at the moment and uh, I wonder uh, whether this proposal would would have a, a larger price tag on it. I think we need to separate um, analysis and um, evidence about the country's long-term needs from budgetary decisions. Any independent body will make recommendations which may or may not be accepted by government and uh, the country does have um, a long-term fiscal problem. I, I personally don't hide my head in the sand about that and wish it would just go away. The reality is that we do have a problem because we do know the need to grow participation rates in tertiary education. But on both sides of politics, public outliers are going to be constrained. So how we can actually grow tertiary participation in a tight fiscal environment is, is probably, in, in my view, one of the most significant policy challenges the country faces. And that's why I think it should probably be subject to some independent analysis and review. I suppose there's also the question of what happens if we don't invest. Sorry, I just missed that, Kelly. And that what happens if we don't invest the cost, the community cost in the long term, cost to individuals, but also to budgets over the, the long term to 2030, 2050, um, potentially will be a lot higher? Oh, that's exactly the point. The, what we, if we end up with increasing numbers of people, particularly young people, not gaining tertiary education, um, workforce participation levels will fall. Um, there will be increased skill shortages. We'll re re rely more and more on uh, skilled migration to fill uh, to fill jobs. Um, unemployment will increase. Dependence on social welfare will increase. Um, the long-term effects in terms of mental and um, physical health uh, will impact, and the country will pay long-term cost. But unfortunately, in looking at balancing the books, we only look at the direct outlays as a cost not at the cost of doing nothing or under-investing. Uh, and we also need to look at what countries in our immediate region are doing, uh, the countries in Southeast Asia, particularly China, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, are massively investing in tertiary education because they realise it's critical to the uh, future of their development um, as, a, as, a, as, um, as countries. And um, we can't afford to be left stranded under-investing in... Um, in, in skills and talent development when our major competitors are uh, going further and further down that track. I mean, just to finish up, we, we heard last week um, the Education Minister talk again about Gonski and, and what we're going to do in schools, education, and straight away that debate went straight to public-private schools. And I wonder when it comes to discussing tertiary education, Peter, whether there is a possibility of an open dialogue or whether we're going to end up with a very narrow discussion well, I think um, it's, 
I think to try and broaden it out too far into um, into schooling would be um, a problem. But what it what it does mean is that decisions on on future funding of schooling as well have to be subject to pretty rigorous tests and analysis because one of the reasons why um, there's been declines in funding in vocational education and training by state governments is because of increased funding for schools or planned increased funding for schools, that is, because they're in the same portfolios. Now, I'm not opposed to that. I strongly support increase in funding for schools, particularly the most needy schools. But if we invest significantly additional resources in schools but under-invest in tertiary education, particularly for young people who rely most on the vet sector, then that investment in schools will effectively be wasted because when kids leave school, they won't be able to go on and continue their studies to get high-quality outcomes. Again, it just points to the need for um, uh, a comprehensive commitment to investment in, um, in education and particularly in the, uh, in the tertiary sector. And unfortunately, in this whole thing between um, schools and higher education, VET has been very much the poor cousin. Thanks so much for talking to us on Triple R, Peter. Okay, Kalia, thank you. And Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth joins us monthly to talk about environment policy, energy policy and associated issues. And I think very timely to have him on uh, today. Um, some big things have been happening recently in the energy sector. Hazelwood is likely to close in about April next year. And renewable energy is getting a bad rap from the government and Nick Xenophon. It's been blamed for the, um, for the uh, massive windstorm that took down the transmission infrastructure of South Australia and plunged it into a statewide blackout. Very unprecedented and uh, it's really good to have you, Cam. And I think um, it was incredible the speed at which renewable energy was blamed for that uh, infrastructure going down in, in South Australia. But as far as I can tell, it wasn't co- coordinated. No, I don't think it was. It's just, um, you know, the, the usual suspects basically lined up to blame renewables. There were no real surprises, I guess, initially. Uh, the new One Nation Senator, Malcolm Roberts, basically said we should stop acting on climate change and stop rolling out renewables and the Institute of Public Affairs and the Minerals Council and all the rest of them. So it wasn't surprising, but it was, I think, disappointing that both the uh, Federal Environment and Energy Minister uh, and the Prime Minister have also weighed into it. And I think also Australian Senator Nick Xenophon... um, you know, who's well known for having concerns about renewables has also been pretty vocal on the issue. So it's just a significant number of voices while the disaster was still unfolding and often that scene has been pretty poor form to, you know, to run politics off the back of a natural disaster, certainly while it's still underway. But yes, it was a land speed record for going straight to blame the renewables. Yeah, and I did, I did hear someone say, oh, it's, it's uh, Malcolm Turnbull's doing a Tony Abbott, but Tony Abbott would have waited till the disaster's over. Uh, lots of um, jokes out there. But, I, I mean, what isn't a joke is that South Australia had a massive blackout. And uh, and I suppose it is an unusual state in that it does have 40% wind capacity over there, which is unrelated to, to what happened. But this 40% wind is something that is a, a, focal, a focal point for uh, the federal government at the moment. Why is that? Um, I think it's because we do have a national renewable energy target, but unfortunately in the Tony Abbott era that was wound back. 
so we lost the incentive and as we know thousands of people lost their jobs and we lost you know many millions of dollars of investment because we lowered the target and in response what's happened is the progressive states states like victoria and south australia have stepped up and really ramped up their state emission targets um so it was the lack of leadership by the feds that made the states actually take action and south australia is ahead of everyone else as you say they're sitting on about 40 percent renewables victoria is only something like 12 percent so we've got a long way to go so it's seen as the, the front leader in this and uh, once you do transition away from coal and, and to renewables it's a one way street and the fossil fuel industry knows that we're never going to go back to coal um, and gas once we've got renewables in place so um, you know this is a make or break moment for the fossil fuel industry and they're looking for any opportunities to capitalise and to attempt to demonise renewable energy. And so I want to talk more about the state targets, but one thing I, I, I thought is that that 40% wind capacity in South Australia was actually as a result of the federal targets, I thought. Yes, yes it was, because that uh, was crafted at the time uh, that the RET was stronger um, and South Australia because at that point Victoria um, we had the world's worst anti-wind laws in place unfortunately under Ted Ballew and Dennis Napfine and uh, Queensland and New South Wales there was nothing happening on renewables either so at that point South Australia just benefited from having a high national rest um, so they were the early adopters and they you know did very well out of it and they uh, sucked up a lot of the uh, the physical wind farms that were being built at that point in time so they were just smart they're ahead of the curve unfortunately so it wasn't their aggressive policies that the prime ministers are are blaming aggressive policies at the state level it wasn't that that led to that 40 percent uptake in in wind in that state so anyway i think if you start to unpick and unpack what uh, the prime minister and barnaby joyce and others have said you can start to pick holes in it but one thing that they have called for is a nationally cohesive renewable approach and i imagine that many people would agree with that maybe not the reasons behind it but would agree with that premise Yes, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, uh, Victoria now has a Victorian renewable energy target, a VRET, and it's um, at least in its initial phase up until the, the national target expires. It's what's called complementary with the federal system. So it means that we're, um, we uh, recover the certificates um, that are, are generated, that is the renewable energy, energy certificates. So it's actually integrated into the national scheme as it is. So again, the minute you unpick the complaints uh, from the anti-wind people, you realise it doesn't hold up. The Victorian renewable target um, is a product of the lack of uh, leadership uh, by the federal government and it's complementary to the federal existing system. So I think they're really complaining about nothing. And, and, I mean, one thing that we do have a problem with, though, is the national electricity market itself and the way it's structured. We've got a whole lot of issues there. And I suppose that interconnector with South Australia, this is the second time this year that, uh, for different reasons, it has been an issue for that state. And I wonder if we're starting to get a conversation now about how we look at the national electricity market to cater for uh, renewable energy uh, together with with fossil fuel, coal-fired power and, and gas energy, for instance? Yes, I think um, this really points to the future of distributed energy and localised energy 
value production, that's always going to be best. Um, if you had more localised, say, local solar PV, uh, local wind with uh, storage, and there's a number of options there that you could adopt. If they finally built the solar thermal plant up at Port Augusta, which was meant to replace the old fossil fuel plant up there, if you had more distributed energy, then that would mean that overall they, that state would be less reliant with the two interconnectors to Victoria. So distributed, localised, renewable energy is always a good thing, but certainly in terms of stabilising the national grid, it's an excellent thing. I suppose we, um, I mean, the, the really big news that came out in the in the past week was that Hazelwood looks like it's going to be closed um, from April next year. Um, uh, maybe give us a bit of a background on Hazelwood. Uh, it's, it's one of the oldest power stations in Australia. It's the most polluting one that we have. Give us a bit of a pricey of the history of this power plant, Cam. Yep, so it goes uh, back to the 1960s when it was initially built. Um, it's meant to have been closed down a couple of times. Most recently in 2010, there was a state government conversation about a staged shutdown uh, in 2012 when Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister. There was the, the cash for clunkers idea where we would pay some of the really dirty plants to wind down. Um, it is one of the big four generators in the state. Um, it's uh, very significant down there in terms of uh, employment. Um, it's, I think it has about 550 direct employees and they've outsourced a lot of, of jobs now but there's about a, a, an additional 300 contractors so it's really important in terms of the valley. Um, but it's very dirty, it's very water-consuming, it's very energy-intensive in terms of it, it's using, as we know, the, the dirty and the wet brown coal as opposed to the black coal up north, which is more efficient, um, and it's well past its use by date. And um, the market is clearly intervening here, and what we're saying is, well, we can't. if, if we leave the market, um, it will be a disaster for the community, and what we need is actually government intervention to ensure there's a, a stage close-down and a really significant and well-funded uh, kind of diversification and transition plan. And uh, the French owner, Angie, is um, the one that will make that call as far as I, I can understand. And so do we know if there is a transition plan in place at the state government level? Look, I think we have to say that this government has been really starting to think about this issue. Uh, in the last state budget, they put in $40 million uh, towards uh, thinking through transition. If you look a little bit more broadly, Victoria is going through a really profound transition. Uh, you know, we're looking at the end of the car uh, manufacturing industry, which has had huge impacts, especially on Geelong. We've had the closure of the, the smelter at Point Henry. That's been a lot of job losses. We've got the Alcoa uh, smelter down in Portland and its current uh, license, well, energy uh, agreement is about to expire and that could have impacts down there. There's this profound transition that's happening in Victoria and it's having profound impacts on the local communities and um, it's very clear with the Latrobe Valley we just can't let it go through to the market, you know, we need a really well-funded plan and I think this government is doing a good job and I've been really heartened by the Energy Minister Lily Dare Ambrosio saying we will stand with the community, but clearly we need a really fleshed out transition plan. We need it out in the public realm, um, and we're going to need a pretty big spend in the next two state budgets, which is the two remaining budgets of the, the current government, uh, that really gets projects 
Boeing on the ground. We're, we're past the point of talking theory. We're now at the point of uh, actually, you know, opening new factories, opening new businesses, you know, and getting jobs um, actually there on the ground in the real community. And where do you think those jobs will come from? I mean, I, I completely agree. We, I mean, the idea that these power plants with such massive employment just close down and that's a full stop. It, 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 we, we can't let that happen. Um, but what, what sort of jobs do you think are actually there and, and could be located in the Latrobe Valley? Um, at this point, with the four big power plants, they're about 10% of the Latrobe Valley uh, direct employment. Obviously, there's a lot of downstream, uh, you know, benefits of that, and they're very well-paid jobs as well. So they're, you know, that's really important as well. So what we need to do is create an equivalent number of well-paid jobs in the valley. Uh, the first thing I think is uh, to clean up the air quality. As Hazelwood is shut down and as other plants are shut down, it's going to become a much healthier place, uh, and that's going to make it more viable. Um, at, in terms of a destination for people to move to. The next stage in that, of course, is to improve the rail link so it is actually well connected to Melbourne. Uh, you can see uh, there's a large urban footprint in the valley and you could actually uh, have a lot more people living there. It's an amazing environment. You've got the mountains to the north, you've got the street records to the south, you've got, you know, Wilson's Prom just beyond. And, uh, you, you know, it's a beautiful environment to live. So I think increased urban development down there is, is a pathway but you can't do it until you start to shut down those power stations. Uh, this food manufacturing, Gippsland of course is the epicentre um, of our food production in the state and increasingly for overseas exports there's a lot of room to move in terms of that. There's a lot of room to move in terms of uh, clean uh, energy production. There's not going to be large scale solar there probably but there's lots of micro production, there's training, there's the idea for a, basically an innovation centre, uh, a state innovation centre um, into energy which has been put forward uh, by the Voices of the Valley which is the local group down there and they want that to look at energy storage options, electric vehicles and new generation research so that is new energy generation uh, there's this suggestion for a green TAFE which would be doing training for new green economy jobs and um, there's a whole bunch of interesting ideas around um, new energy sources including geothermal energy which actually exists beneath the existing coal layer which is low emissions technology so there are options there in terms of other sources of energy which are either renewable or low uh, carbon output which could be brought online. So I mean it sounds like a lot of thinking has gone into it which is at the community level anyway but what um, what are, what do we know about the, the announcements around this when will it be uh, very clear at what's going to happen with Hazelwood? Well it's always interesting how you know this is the rumour mill where the, an announcement comes out or a rumour comes out and then the company says oh no we're not planning to do anything but the best knowledge that anyone seems to have is that either on the 19th or the 20th of this month the parent company will take a decision in Paris about what they're doing with Hoverwood and according to recent media reports um, you know that the plan will be a shutdown rather than a sale of the Hazelwood plant so we could well have uh, you know a decision by the end of this month and the media reports were saying the shutdown was anticipated for early April next year so uh, we're going to have to start moving very very fast if that's actually the case. So you were talking about the state government as having responsibility in its budget for um, any shutdown of, of Hazelwood and changes in the valley. What about at the federal level? Uh, the Prime Minister, just going by his comments uh, around South Australia, he's sounding pretty cranky and not very talkative about the national electricity market, but I imagine the federal government needs to be involved with this as well. Absolutely. This 
there's three aspects to this. The state government, of course, is, is the primary responsibility. You know, they, you know, energy production is a state issue. The federal government at least have to match the funds we believe that the state government is going to put in. So the state government's already put $40 million into transition. We would want to see a much bigger spend next year and the year after, so we think the feds need to match that. But, of course, the company has a role to play as well. They've made very good money off running that plant and running it pretty skinny in terms of, um, you know, uh, its overhead costs. So they've made very nice tidy profits off the valley for uh, for the time they've owned that plant as have other operators so it's essential the companies aren't allowed just to walk away we're going to need money from each of those sources state federal governments plus the companies that have been running the plants and uh, that will give us a, a very healthy uh, pot from which to put in place all these transition ideas thanks so much for talking with us cam and um it sounds like we might have some more news uh, next time we speak in a month's time Yes, indeed, we will. Thanks, yep. Carly. Thanks. Uh, uh, but talking about the Keep Sydney Open campaign now, anyone with friends, as I was saying, in Sydney or who plays gigs up there will know that the city's having to fight to keep parts of it open at night. Lockout laws uh, put in place as a result of one-punch assaults and late-night violence have had a massive impact on the cultural life of Sydney. Already half a dozen or more inner-city venues have closed. And uh, Tyson Coe, a broadcaster at FBI Radio and also a music journalist uh, in Sydney, um, he and others have been running a campaign called Keep Sydney Open. They're busily organising another rally calling for a smarter approach to late night violence and um, I caught up with him over the weekend to find out more about what's happening in Sydney and where their campaign's at and first ask for a bit of background. The lockout laws came into effect in February 2014, so I've had them for about two and a half years now. It was something that a lot of people in the creative community were, were uh, um, resistant to, and, uh, and I think for good reason. And two years down the track, it's just crescendoed as an issue because a lot of people are noticing that it's just cleared out the streets at night time and a lot of the music industry has suffered, venues have closed down and the live music office did a report that, uh, that showed that immediately after the lockouts in the 12 months after they were brought in that 40% of uh, ticket sale revenue uh, was reduced. So really what Keep Sydney Open is trying to do is alert the greater public to these issues on the ground about inner city precincts and and the culture that's being um, lost and uh, and attacked and uh, and certainly um, you know we we're definitely taking up the fight to the government. And uh, I mean, people in Melbourne will remember the slam rallies down here where uh, there was a requirement for security on venues, music venues. What is it in Sydney that I understand the lockout laws are one thirty a.m. lockout of venues, three a.m. cease of service, and and it's just the CBD. Maybe you can talk through some of those details. Okay, so the main areas which have the lockout are Kings Cross, but also Darlinghurst, which takes in that entire stretch of Oxford Street that's, uh, well, at least up until recently known around the world as being one of the most uh, um, prolific um, LGBTQI precincts in the world and, uh, and also uh, much of the central business district as well. So, yes, it is a 1.30am lockout, which means you can't enter into uh, a venue um, after that time, and those venues can only trade up until 3am. Uh, now, a lot of people are quite upset because, meanwhile, you're allowed to go to the casino if you want to have a drink late at night, and that's certainly, uh, I think, a, a, 
a huge hole in the logic there because you know, if if this is meant to be about alcohol-fueled violence, then surely we would be taking in a venue which has seen an increase in violence since since the lockouts, which is the casino, which arguably doesn't lend itself to positive culture. So, uh, look, um, it's been very restrictive, and uh, as I said earlier, a lot of venues have closed or or on the brink of closing as a result. And so with the, uh, the laws as they've come in, I understand they've been reviewed. What, what was the result of that inquiry into the impact of the laws? Well, ultimately what um, the former High Court judge Ian Callanan uh, recommended was that the lockout should be relaxed. Uh, he suggested a half an hour relaxation of the lockouts to 2am and ceasing of service to 3am. However, anyone, particularly um, as you would down in Melbourne, would know that that's just not really good enough. Um, 3.30, 2am, you know, a lot of venues really rely on uh, what happens after midnight, particularly uh, when there are DJs and dance parties to subsidise the bands and the live music that happen earlier in the evening. So even though we congratulate uh, Callanan for recommending the relaxation, it doesn't go far enough. And who's involved with your campaign? I understand um, Keep Sydney Open has really tried to keep the, the members of your campaign to the cultural aspect of nightlife and to not align with those that really want to sell alcohol and that's their, their main interest in, in uh, having the lockout laws relaxed. That's right. Uh, a lot of people have accused Keep Sydney Open of being funded by the back door, um, by alcohol lobby groups and, um, and the AHA, but nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there's a lot of dedicated uh, volunteers and really close friends of mine who have spent our own money on this campaign because what we found uh, is that uh, a lot of those bigger um, uh, organisations, for example, um, the Australian Hotels Association weren't very much help to us and of course they have different interests. I think they're probably more concerned with with uh, with promoting gambling than they are even alcohol, let, let alone uh, live music. So we've definitely kept them out of our organisation. But uh, but yeah, look, um, we we certainly see that there's uh, there's a, a, a very potent and active community on the ground with live music and also um, uh, uh, dance music as well. And there's a lot of media which has some fantastic reach there and obviously you've got the artists themselves who have uh, a huge social reach and so we found that we're able to gain traction just by uh, keeping this campaign really grassroots. And so where, I mean what prompted the laws in the first place was the one one punch killings that were taking place and were really nationally reported um, and have they ceased as a result? Uh, are you sort of I suppose trying to see a relaxation of these laws but that they're actually working? Are you Is that a, a battle for you guys? So the laws were brought in for a couple of reasons. There was a pre-existing campaign uh, by a couple of emergency um, service union groups to make venues close earlier. So that got set up roughly around, I think, 2007, 2008. So there are a lot of people who were pushing uh, for laws similar to the lockouts um, for years before they came into effect. And then what happened was there were a couple of very high-profile incidents uh, of, um, of people who got punched and then died very tragically. And so that really kicked off 
this groundswell of support in some sections of the community to have um, uh, laws brought in similar to the lockouts. Now, there's a couple of issues there. One is that those laws don't do anything to address the underlying um, behavioural issues that are involved with men who are violent when when they're out on the street, those people go completely unaddressed. Meanwhile, the majority of people who just want to go out, celebrate a night out with their friends, watch a band, dance to a great DJ, those people are essentially being blamed for the actions of essentially two very violent men who had a history of violence. And so there's two big issues since the lockouts that we have. One is that um, as I said, we don't, um, we're not addressing uh, the issues of violence. And two, uh, we haven't even um, we haven't even fixed violence. I mean, there's still uh, people being punched. There's still people getting drunk and and all that kind of stuff in the city. You know, I mean, like this is not a pan- panacea. Uh, for those issues. And so what our campaign is focusing on is the alternative, um, the alternative solutions that will probably have an even greater effect, uh, on antisocial behaviour in entertainment precincts rather than this one size fits all blanket policy which just completely destroys the vibrancy of a whole major city. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, it's very noticeable. Last time I was in Sydney, that it is a different city to other times when I've been out at night, and I think a lot of people visiting will notice that. Let alone those that live in Sydney. But I wonder, when you talk about some of the closures, what, what size venues are closing? Well, some of them are the small to medium size venues, and um, some people don't realise that these are the venues that are really important to the music community as incubators of live talent because so many artists who are kicking goals overseas started off in smaller venues before they worked their way up through medium-sized venues and then uh, and then huge global festivals. So that's what we're finding is that these um, venues which have... Um, you know, poker machines and um, and um, cheap jugs of beer and all that kind of stuff. These are the venues that don't have a problem staying open, but uh, but but the ones that don't have pokies and the ones that um, that really try and put on something interesting for the city uh, in terms of cultural events and live music, they're the ones that are at risk here. Tyson Coe's with us. He's uh, the campaign manager of Keep Sydney Open and it's a campaign that's been running for some time in Sydney to uh, urge the state government there to relax the lockout laws that have been in place for a couple of years now. And as, as part of your campaign, you've actually got quite creative. You've gone recently and put memorial plaques up around the city highlighting to the public who got their start at certain venues. Can you tell us um, what response you've had to that? Look, it was a huge response, and I think it's because when we're talking about venue closures and what's been lost in the city, I mean, so many people who are weighing in on this argument don't even come into the city. They live in rural areas of New South Wales or perhaps outer suburbs of Sydney, and so these arguments are very abstract to them. So this campaign to set up plaques outside venues that have um, that have gone out of business and then linking them to the household names that uh, that got their start in these venues we found was a really effective way to highlight what's been lost and since then we've put up a video and we uh, were very lucky to get the support of Flume and Future Classic who uh, donated a, a track from 
plume and we used the video uh, to show the uh, the plot campaign uh, to preview um, an unreleased plume song. So it's gone absolutely gangbusters and, uh, dare I say, viral. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic response. So the government is still talking and listening to people, is it, uh, Tyson? Yes. Um, well... It's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say whether the efforts to involve um, venues and the live music scene and keep Sydney open are genuine or whether they're just lip service. I guess we'll find out when the government responds to the review into the legislation, which we're expecting over the next month or so. Um, so, look, we'll just have to see. Um, I would hope that they do because, you know, you really can't um, come up with policy that suits everyone when you're when you're formulating it from an ivory tower and you don't engage with the communities that are being affected and that's what we're finding that up until now the government has, has had no idea of what actually makes this city great. Yeah, it's um, interesting too when looking at it from an economic point of view and the bits of the Callanan report that I read um, really pointed to the concerns around jobs and the economy as, as not holding up um, when, when looking into it. But do you think that you can continue to argue that, that there's been hundreds of job losses as a result of these lockout laws and that matters? Well, of course it matters because it's just, because it's young people who are mainly being affected. When you're thinking about the kinds of people that work in these venues, they're people who are working at night time. Often they're young adults who are putting themselves through uni and then they can only really start a shift of work uh, after 5pm. And in one venue alone, Hugo's and King's Cross, uh, which is a venue that bands like Flight Facilities and Sneaky Sound System got their start in, uh, that venue alone, when it was at its peak, employed up to 120, 130 people. So when you think about the impact that just simply one venue closure has, then, you know, we are really talking about a pretty widespread economic impact, which uh, unfortunately does affect creatives. And, uh, and, and, and what we do find is that uh, these are the communities that aren't represented very well either by union groups or, or other organisations that can really go out to bat for them to, uh, to government. And we had a really, I think, good response to the 10,000-odd people that, that rallied, you know, five years ago here with the SLAM rally calling for, uh, I suppose, the government to be aware of the impact of, of policy on, on the cultural life of, of Melbourne here. Um, you've got a rally coming up this Sunday uh, uh, calling for the government to, to heed this. Are you expecting large numbers to turn out? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our rally that we had in February had between 10 and 15,000 people. Uh, and so that really put our issue on the map and I guess forced the government to take notice of what our concerns were. Because don't forget, these uh, laws had been in place for two years. And I think the expectation was that they would bring in these laws, people would acclimatise and then the issue would go away. But the opposite had happened. More and more people were starting to speak up. And so it's been six months since then. Um, I think our Facebook numbers have tripled since that rally. So we're definitely expecting big numbers and, uh, and hopefully that will um, continue to put us in a good position to be able to uh, represent the music community and the venues and also the people who want to uh, have a good time in them um, from, from this point on. What are you calling for in that rally, um, Tyson? I understand you've got sort of 
seven main points that you're trying to get across. I suppose seven is quite a lot to try and get across in a rally, but what are you hoping will, will come from that? Well, first things first is just to get rid of the 1.30am lockout. I mean, there's no question that that is the measure that has um, really denigrated um, the, the, the civil liberties of Sydney siders the most, and it's also the one which is really questionable as to uh, whether it has an impact, and that's backed up by academics who work in this area, and plus it's one of the measures that uh, I think um, when it was trialled in Melbourne um, was found to have not worked because it just put everyone out on the street all at the same time. But uh, So we're definitely calling for an end to that. Um, we are also looking at other solutions like improving Sydney's late-night transport, which has been pretty shocking, uh, I've got to say, over the years, and the government really didn't do anything to address that before it decided to put in these very punitive lockouts. Uh, in Melbourne, of course, as you know, there's 24-hour transport on the weekend, which we would love to see implemented in Sydney. Uh, I think we want to look at policing strategies too. Um, too often in Sydney, uh, what we're finding is that a lot of uh, police operations are concentrated inside venues. They'll often go in, sometimes um, tactical gear, um, um, uh, sniffer dogs and all that kind of stuff, when all the violence that happens in the inner city area overwhelmingly happens out on the street. So we would like to address police strategies, but also diversifying the kinds of activities that are on offer late at night, extending retail hours until later, uh, art gallery hours, restaurant hours, because we want to make a more inclusive nightlife for everyone and not just the people who, who want to dance to, you know, disco, house or hip-hop late at night, but also uh, for families as well, which I think would um, make a really huge difference. Um, so, look, we're just asking the government to have a more holistic approach that doesn't throw uh, the baby out with the bathwater, that doesn't jeopardise Sydney's reputation as an international city and instead looks at this issue with a cool head. Thanks so much for speaking with us and all the best with your campaign because I think um, we all, all of us who love live music, uh, really have a vested interest in, in seeing your campaign succeed. So thanks heaps for talking with us on Triple R, Tyson. Thank you so much. appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.